Howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Beyond 28 Podcast, presented by Chase, a show designed to keep the conversation around black history going all year long. We're going to continue to celebrate the excellence, the joy, and the love that is black culture and the black community. Each month, a new episode will explore the influence and impact black people not only have made historically, but also continue to make each and every day. I'm your host, Mark J. Spears, so kick back and relax as we get right into it. This month on Beyond 28, we take a look at those who are helping build political power in the black community. From the turnout in the 2020 presidential election and the ongoing calls for protest and action, we have seen the power of the black community as a political tool. We witnessed the once red state of Georgia flip the blue through the power and determination of Stacey Abrams to get black voters registered and to the polls. This has become even more present in the sports arena as athletes are now using their platforms to speak out against unfair policies and motivate the black community to get out and vote. Organizers are reaching out to educate voters about local elections, letting voters know that change starts at the local level, not just in the presidential election. In the next 45 minutes, you'll hear from some amazing organizers and athletes that are putting in the work to educate and empower black voters to not only head to the polls, but to make their voices heard. First, in our Beyond the Course segment, we'll talk to one of the co-founders of the Black Lives Matter movement and political organizer Alicia Garza about how her upbringing led her to political organizing and what she's doing now to promote political power in the black community. And later in our Center Court segment, we talked to Patricia Robinson, former NFL star Eric Reed, about their work with the Know Your Rights Camps, an organization started by former NFL star Colin Kaepernick to teach black and brown youth about their legal rights. We then talked to Asiato Diallo and Chandra Rogers, who are two youth ambassadors in the Know Your Rights Camp, about their experience through the program. These interviews are as candid, raw, and vulnerable as you can get as we have deep conversations about political capital in the black community. So kick back, relax, and get ready for some knowledge. I'm your host, Mark J. Spears from ESPN's The Undefeated. Welcome to Beyond 28. In our next segment, we had the pleasure of speaking with political organizer and writer Alicia Garza. The Bay Area native is known for being one of the co-founders of the Black Lives Matter movement after the acquittal of George Zimmerman for the murder of Trayvon Martin. She has continued this work as a political organizer with the Black Futures Lab. That's mission is to help the black community establish their political power through voter registration. We talk with her to hear her hopes for the future of the black vote in the United States. Hello, this is Mark Spears with the Beyond 28 podcast, and it is certainly my pleasure to welcome Alicia Garza, the Bay Area native, our homegirl. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Certainly our honor as well. Uh, you know, I know you're from Marin County. And when I think of Marin County, I think of you and Tupac. You know, Tupac was <laughs> raised out there as well. I'm glad I could join the league. 
How did growing up in Marin County in the Bay Area inspire you to to get in, involved in political organizing? Well, as you know, the Bay Area has been a crucible for various social movements that I think have really influenced the country. You know, everything from the Black Panther Party for self-defense to the Third World Liberation Strikes at San Francisco State to some of the protests and organizing that came out of UC Berkeley. The Bay Area has really had a long history of cultivating and crafting social movements that have inspired change across this nation. And for me, the Bay Area is significant and important in my own political awareness and my own awareness around what's happening both here in the Bay and outside of it. Interestingly, when people think about the Bay, they think that um, we're just the land of milk and honey, right? (laughs) A lot of people travel here or move here, emigrate here for freedom. When you think about places like San Francisco, you have a lot of people who say, I moved out of my community in, you know, the Midwest or on the East Coast because it was too small for me. And the Bay Area felt like a place where I could be three-dimensional. I think that's really true. I think people come here to live a certain way, but we should never be mistaken that we have a lot of the same issues and challenges that communities are facing across the country, whether it be poverty and unemployment or racism or any kind of ceilings or barriers that communities experience certainly exist here. And even though this is a place that has significant wealth and resource, And we shouldn't forget that that wealth and those resources are not distributed equally here. And that is really what has inspired me to get involved, to make sure that everybody has access to the things that we need to live well and to live full and dignified lives. So how how do you get involved in the political world at 12? Like, How did that happen? Yeah, I mean, I got involved. My first campaign was really a fight around reproductive rights. And At the time in this country, there was a a bigger fight happening that was being led by the moral majority. Um, And you'll remember that at that time in the 90s, there was significant social unrest, whether it was the uprisings in Los Angeles around the beating of Rodney King and then subsequently the acquittal of the officers who beat him, all the way to fights around abortion and the AIDS crisis was at its height at that time. In my school district, we were really a reflection of these larger conversations. In my school district, there was a debate about whether or not to allow access to contraception in school nurses' offices, and in particular condoms. And in my you know, liberal community, you'd be surprised to hear that there was a lot of hand-wringing about whether or not young people should have access to condoms on school grounds. But the fact of the matter is, at that time, there was an uproar about teen pregnancy, and yet there was a lack of access for young people to have the tools that they needed to be safe. And so it seemed contradictory to me, right, to say, okay, we don't want kids to get pregnant, but we're not going to allow them to have access to condoms and other kinds of contraception so that they are making choices that are safe for them. And so I got involved. And much to the chagrin of my parents, (laughs) they were like, really, girl? Like, this is what we're doing? I was like, yes, this is what we're doing. But part of it for me was that I was raised for the first part of my life with a single mother. And she had me, she was in a relationship when she got pregnant with me. And then that relationship quickly fell apart before I was born. And she talked to me a lot about sex. (laughs) 
She was like, no words, mints, no holds barred. She was like, it's really hard being a single mother. She said, sex makes babies and babies are expensive, (laughs) right? She talked to me a lot also about things like consent and making sure that you have the tools you need to be safe and to be well. And so it was a no brainer for me when this debate came up that young people should have access to the things that they needed and that we needed. And unfortunately, in that conversation, there was a lot of adults talking about what they thought young people needed, but they weren't actually talking to the people who were being impacted by these rules and policies. So that's how I got involved. And it set off a course that we haven't been able to stop yet. Been on fire since. So who were your inspirations growing up that helped inspire you to get into this world? Well, my mom was a big inspiration. She is somebody who grew up in the Midwest, in Toledo, Ohio, somebody who always felt like the world wasn't big enough for her. And so the way she lived her life really inspired me and the way that she encouraged me to live my life has been a big inspiration. And we lost her about three years ago to brain cancer. However, I feel really grateful for all the lessons that she shared with me. She is literally somebody who I always called a Renaissance woman. She could do a little bit of everything pretty well. And there was nothing that you could ask Lynette about that she didn't know a little something about. (laughs) And then there have been a lot of people along the way that have inspired and influenced me. I spent about a decade organizing in Bayview Hunters Point, which is in the Southeast section of San Francisco, the largest remaining black community in San Francisco. And I led campaigns for a long time around development, redevelopment, gentrification, and environmental racism. And I was most inspired by the people who were on the front lines, who took the time, their time and their energy and their commitment to really making sure that San Francisco was not a place that could easily forget about the needs of Black communities. So everybody from people like Regina Douglas, who we called the mama of that community, people like William Mary Ratcliffe, who have been running the San Francisco Bayview newspaper for decades now, uh, making sure that The struggles of Black communities uh, had a home and a voice. People like Betty Higgins, who uh, was a bus driver on Muni for, I don't know, 30-something years and is still fighting to make sure that her community is safe and free of toxins. Those are the people who inspire me, people who could have chosen to do anything else or chose to do nothing, who stepped up and keep stepping up and making sure that we all have a place to live that is dignified where our lives are respected, where we can be healthy and safe. Those are my heroes and sheroes. In August of 2013, after the acquittal of the man that killed Trayvon Martin, you wrote on Facebook, Black people, I love you. I love us. Our lives matter. It was a hashtag heard around the world in the beginning of the movement. What have you learned in the years since that post went viral? So many things. The first thing, though, is that I think it's important for all of us to understand, especially in this period of lull, right, after protests, after all of those things, the most visible expressions of movements, that this movement is much bigger and longer than Black Lives Matter. I wrote that post in July of 2013 when George Zimmerman was acquitted in the murder of Trayvon Martin. A movement around the lives of Black people has been in full swing since way before I came around. And I always say to people that depending on where we enter, 
movements is where we think they began. But the fact of the matter is, right, this movement comes out of the welfare rights organizing work that happened in Detroit and DRUM, right, in Detroit. It comes out of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense and all of the work that they did to help move our dignity forward and to fight for Black power. This movement comes out of the Harlem Renaissance, right? It comes out of the last period of civil rights and all of that stuff happened way before we were even a twinkle (laughs) in our parents' eyes. Why I bring that forward is just to say that each generation has an opportunity to put its unique mark on our generation's long fight for freedom. Rather than trying to figure out where things started and stopped, our primary task is to figure out what our stamp is going to be. And we have a real opportunity to see if we can advance this movement to its next stage. Uh, What we know right now is that we're in a period of opportunity and backlash. We are in the midst of a civil cultural war, and it's in particular around change. Whether or not this country, which is founded on racism and white supremacy, will resist the urge to go back to its original shape where Black lives don't matter. Last year, you know, everybody wanted to learn about racism and white supremacy. This year, we're being told to be a little more quiet about it. And so we get to decide, right, which direction we're going we're gonna to go in. And that is a big lesson and observation that I have for this period post Trayvon Martin, post Michael Brown, post Breonna Taylor, we get to decide if the rubber band is going to contract or expand. And that is the work that I do every day to make sure that we either bust that rubber band all the way up or expand it so that there's more opportunities for change. How did BLM propel you to start more political organizations and initiatives? BLM really was an opportunity to build infrastructure for Black organizing. If you know anything about history, you know that the last period of civil rights and Black power was really intentionally and devastatingly targeted by the state for destruction. And what that meant, right, is there were and still are a lot of gaps in the networks and resources and fabric that we need to be powerful in politics and in every other aspect of our lives. And what I noticed when we started to try to build structure around Black Lives Matter as a global network is that there were so many places where Black people were and wanted to organize that didn't have any organizations in their communities that were focused on the lives of Black people. There were places that we talked to where folks would say, there's nothing here. There's an NAACP chapter and it's all white people, right? <laughs> we don't have organizations that are fighting on behalf of Black people. And so I would say that my last five years or so, it's not so much a leaving of BLM, it's more so a determination to keep building the fabric that we need to be powerful in every aspect of our lives. That's the work that I do with the Black Futures Lab and the Black to the Future Action Fund. And it's the work that I've continued to do. You mentioned the Black Futures Lab, which you are a principal of. For those unfamiliar, can you break down what it is and what the mission is? Yeah, the Black Futures Lab works to make Black communities powerful in politics so we can be powerful in the rest of our lives. We do a lot of different things, including collecting recent and relevant data about who our communities are, what we experience every day, and what we want for our futures, and use that to develop and design more effective, grounded, and rooted public policy that undoes the rules that have been rigged against us and implements and wins new rules that benefit all of us, not just Black people, but all of our communities. 
We also motivate and activate and educate Black voters across the country, making sure that we have a home that we can utilize to learn about the political process, to be more engaged, both locally and at a state level, on the decisions that are being made about us, largely without us. We also advocate for and design new policy that we work with leaders and communities to pass and win. So that's a little bit about what we do. Our organization has been able to conduct the largest survey of Black people in America in 156 Mm. years. It's called the Black Census Project. We'll be launching it again in February of 2022. And we use that information to design better public policy. So look out for us. And if you want to check us out, we're at blackfutureslab.org. Any um, stats that stand out to you from your research? Uh, Yeah. I always say if you were an alien dropped in from outer space and you wanted to know what Black people cared about, probably what you would think based on news cycles is that all we care about is the criminal legal system and maybe marijuana reform. The fact of the matter is what we learned from the census project is that the number one issue that is keeping Black communities up at night is wages that are too low to support a family, quickly followed by the lack of affordable health care, quickly followed by the lack of access to affordable and quality housing. Black to the ballot initiative. You got a lot going on. Can you talk about that and the impact that's having on the country and the impact you want it to have on the country? Absolutely. Well, black voters were kind of central to the outcomes of federal and state elections in 2020. And we were one of many organizations that made it so. Our first field program ever, we were able to talk to over 2 million black voters about the issues that we cared about, making sure that people got registered to vote, making sure people know where their polling place was, but also designing an agenda that people could get excited about and can take that agenda to the polls uh, in order to vote on that agenda. For us, it's really important that we're not just focused on candidates and politicians, but that we're focused on the agenda that we want those candidates and politicians to carry. And we did exactly that. We used our Black Census Project to design a Black agenda for 2020 that really honed in on the issues that our communities cared about and what we wanted to see done about it. We used that agenda to motivate Black voters to go to the polls. And then we also provided a lot of political education for people about where folks stood on the issues that we cared about so that people could make informed choices about what they wanted to see happen and who they wanted to carry that agenda forward. And we're going to see that again next year. So look out for us. We are going to talk to at least as many people as we did in 2020. And we are coming back in full force with an agenda that we want to see. What I think you can expect is that people who we put in place who did not carry that agenda may see themselves losing their jobs. And other people will be put on notice that we're not going back to sleep after the polls close. And in fact, we fully expect that you carry out the agenda that we put you in office to carry out. This past election, we've seen tremendous Black turnout. What's the key to keeping Black voters, people of color, people that are marginalized, inspired to continue to go to the polls and not just go to the polls every, every four years? How do your organizations work on that for the local elections and not just the big ones? Well, there's two key interventions that have to be made. And one is with the national and state parties that depend on our votes to survive. And the other has to do with policy change. I mean, at the end of the day, what are we telling black voters to go to the polls for? You know, there's a lot of conversation about whether or not we're motivated as if we're just too lazy to do it. But we're not too lazy. It's really that black voters are looking for impact and black voters are looking for results. 
And the fact of the matter is there's been a lot of hedging around the issues that black voters care about. And this is really a deeply abusive relationship that black voters are in, right? Where we're constantly told that we need to show up, we need to vote, but then we rarely get the things that we want to see happen policy-wise. And so there has to be a renewed push to make sure that we're winning real things for real people and that we don't get so caught up in procedure that we forget about the importance of outcome. What motivates and activates voters across the board, but Black voters in particular, is when they see action on the things that they care about. Well, Alicia Garza, keep changing the world. Thank you for everything you've done, and thank you for uh, coming on Beyond 28 and continued success. Thank you for everything. Our next guests are Patricia Robinson, executive of operations at the Know Your Rights Camp, and Eric Reed, former NFL player for the San Francisco 49ers. We'll talk to them about the Know Your Rights Camp. These camps are the brainchild of Colin Kaepernick and his partner, Nessa Dia, and are designed to teach black and brown youth about their legal rights. These camps are held in various cities across the United States, including Oakland, New Orleans, and Miami. Afterwards, we also get a chance to speak with youth ambassadors Asiato Diallo and Shonda Rogers about their experience in the camp that ultimately led them to become mentors to those under them. Patricia, first tell us how you got started in Know Your Rights Camp and tell us all your experience with it in the camps as well. And also, for those that that don't know, explain it a little more. Absolutely. Um, And just to talk to you about the Know Your Rights Camp and where it started, Colin Kaepernick and his partner, Nessa, who's the co-founder, conceived the Know Your Rights Camp in 2015 in the wake of Mario Woods being murdered in the Bayview neighborhood of San Francisco. And that was just a few minutes away from where Colin had played as starting professional quarterback. So as a direct response to police terrorism against black and brown people, that organization was established to provide young people with legal, cultural, and community resources to fight back against systemic oppression, police terrorism, and racial inequality. And as you mentioned, that first camp was uh, actually in 2016, October 29th, 2016 in Oakland, where we started off with 100 students. And the overall premise of that camp is really to focus on the liberation and empowerment and advancement of our young people. And we spend the day really focusing on pillars surrounding education, self-empowerment, mass mobilization, technology, financial literacy, holistic health. So there's all of these amazing, really important pillars that are laced within the day. Uh, We've been really fortunate to do seven camps so far and really excited about reemerging in 2022. Eric, tell us about your involvement and why this organization is important to you. So I got involved uh, after my involvement with Colin protesting during the national anthem. Um, He told me about the camp that him and Nessa or getting off the ground and really just wanted me to come and attend and see what it was about. And man, um, my experience much like, I learned for the first time that if you're a passenger in a vehicle, you actually do not have to present your identification to a police officer. Like, I've never heard that before. That was my introduction into the camp. And, um, you know, I, just along the way over the years, I've just helped in any capacity that I could. Um, but you're looking at, the person right here, Ms. Pat, and I know I can speak for Colin and Nessa, um, that is really one of the driving forces behind this camp um, to get everything done. I try to think about my most memorable moment for covering the camp. And one thing I thought was that I think a lot of kids don't realize, even if you don't do well in high school, you can still go to college. 
junior college will accept you. There, there's a way to start from scratch. I wanted to ask you both, for a kid that goes to the camp, what is the most memorable thing to you that they will get from it? So for me, you know, when we think about our black and brown youth, right, we know that they will likely have experiences, for example, with police interactions that will be different from white people, right? They're more likely to get detained. They're more likely to be handcuffed, searched, really encounters that could potentially be deadly. So what we aim to do is to help them understand how to prepare if they were in that unfortunate event on how to walk away alive. And that kind of really overarching kind of supports our 10 principles, our, our, our 10 rights, where we talk about you have the right to be free, you have the right to be healthy, you have the right to be brilliant, you have the right to be safe, you have the right to be loved, you have the right to be courageous, you have the right to be alive, you have the right to be trusted, you have the right to be educated, and more importantly, you have the right to know your rights. So what we are trying to do is to not only educate them, but to really instill in them fundamental freedom human rights that they can stick to and that those are really non-negotiable items. For me, it's, it's one thing that, that Pat talked on, um, the interactions with police officers, right? That's really what got me involved in the protests. That's really what got me to where I was with being involved with the camp, right? My story comes from Alton Sterling. If you don't know his story, he was killed by police officers at a gas station in Baton Rouge, Louisiana on Gardner Lane. My first home, I was born into a house on that street, on, on Gardner Lane. So that touched really close to home for me. But one of the, the biggest moments that I recall in visiting the camp is learning that police officers tend to blur the lines between what's legal and what's your permission, right? A police officer cannot search your vehicle without a warrant or without your permission. So they'll ask questions like, can I see what's in your trunk, right? And if you say yes, you've not authorized that police officer to search your vehicle without a warrant, right? But you wouldn't know that unless somebody had educated you that they can't search you without a warrant. And so just learning how a proper interaction is supposed to go with a police officer, that doesn't mean that it will go that way, but afterwards, you know what was done legally, what was done illegally, how you can fight back at a later date. And as Pat said, the, the goal is to go home alive, right? We want you to go home alive, contact the proper attorney, legal counsel or representation, and be able to articulate how you were violated and what capacity you were violated. But a lot of folks, they don't know. They don't know that they were illegally searched. And so they don't know how to fight back or protect themselves with, with proper legal representation. So as we as we keep saying, the education that the camp is providing to youth about how to interact with police officers, how to get to school, I think is it's invaluable. It's, it's also sad, right? White kids ain't having this conversation or these teachings that, that is black and brown kids. I think that's the most painful part to me in all of this. Like, I, I hope there's a day when Y'all don't have to teach that no more. We don't have to teach that no more. Sadly, I don't know when that magical, mystical day is coming, right? Yeah, Eric, I know there was one in New Orleans. What could you tell me about that camp, which in a lot of ways, New Orleans has a lot of the same challenges that you see in Oakland? The city of New Orleans 
it has a reputation for the lower income communities, the parts of the city that still go by the ward names, right? That's what we're talking about, the lower ninth ward, the seventh ward, right? The, these are our communities, right? And these are the ones where people get brutalized. And so I recently moved back to Louisiana. We're living in the city of New Orleans, so I, I, I drive these streets. And so it was really important for me to get this information to the youth in our communities, right? I mean, I remember growing up, I grew up close to the Baton Rouge, but I remember you just didn't go to New Orleans, right? It was during the time of the, the, the Iraq war where they were saying it was actually more dangerous to be in New Orleans than to be overseas, right? And I'm like, why is that? How could that be? This, that, and the other. And you get these reputations and then you find out how the school system works or the, the, the school to prison pipeline the, the lack of resources, how this side of this, and you know, New Orleans is not that big. It is a very small city, but how does all the money get allocated to Lakeview and not Hollygrove? I think it was very important for me just to get that information, the education to the folks that needed it the most in my home state. Eric, I want to ask you from all the camps that you've been to, was there something that a kid said or a moment that personally made you feel great and then also maybe even brought you to tears? I don't remember exactly what was said, but I remember how I felt. One kid in particular raised his hand and talked about an experience that he had, right? And and this is in New Orleans? Yes, and it, it was it's crushing, right? Like, it's a long day. Um, the camp is seven or eight hours. And so, you know, the kids, like I've seen the excitement on their face and then they talk about this thing that happened to them and it crushes you. And it's like, how did this happen? Right. Miss Pat is really humble about the amount of work that it goes into this. And you're right on point that it's sad that we have to do it. But the camp is doing all that they know how to to address these issues. And it's tailored to the city. Miss Pat has come up with with maps that give community resources, where where the food banks are, where the grocery stores are, where this is, where that is. So it's a tremendous amount of work that goes into to making sure that the people who are attending the camp have the resources they need when they leave the camp. I wanted to ask you, where did your strength come from to use your platform while you were playing, while you were getting a check and you had a lot of I want to say the majority of your teammates was like, nah, man, I ain't doing all that. Where did that strength come from? And what would you tell the next generation of athletes who want to use their platform to promote social change? So for me, it came from love. I did this out of the love for other people. You know from your career, right? Athletes usually give their time. Let me preface by saying I'm not belittling anybody's contribution to charity. I'm not belittling anybody's contribution to, to anything. But from my experience, when the 49ers wanted me to do something charitable, it usually involved just showing up and just being there. And I realized that charity is not the same thing as change. Charity has its place. I'm not, again, I'm not belittling charity, but charity and change are two different things. I felt like we needed to do something that changed certain aspects of our society to where people no longer needed your charity. So change it so we don't need the charity. So I really wanted to use my platform as an opportunity to just 
open the door to conversation, to be a mouthpiece for people who weren't being heard. And if I was to advise the next generation of athletes, I would say, do what you do out of love because they'll flip it into hate really quickly. And that's what they deal with us. They they wanted to talk about how we hated the military, how we hated America, how we hated. It's like, nah, man, how about I love living here so much that I want to make it better. How about we did it out of love to try and make our community better. Don't do it out of hate, right? Because you're no better than anybody else if you're doing it out of hate. So let your motivations be love. Wow. Thank you both. Thank you for your impact on the world and continued success with this program. We have two uh, esteemed guests that are connected to Know Your Rights Camp. We have uh, Isatu Diallo and Chandra Rogers. Good day, ladies. Hi. Hello. So, so for people who are not familiar with you both, please tell us what you're doing now, what schools you attend, and, and how you are involved with the Know Your Rights Camp. My name is Chandra Rogers. I'm uh, currently a sophomore at Howard University, a political science major. Over the past few years, I've been involved with a lot of different political movements and um, just my personal ventures. I've worked on some T-shirts with political and social issues, and I've spoken at the United Nations, working every day to make the world a better place and doing my part. And Isitude, please tell us about yourself. Yeah, so I'm a senior at NYU. I'm creating my own major, so the concentration I'm designing focuses on African voices talking about development in Africa. I'm also a youth ambassador for the Know Your Rights Camp. Um, I was introduced to the Know Your Rights Camp through Louis Sad Girls Club, which is an organization that I was a part of in high school. And the Louis Sad Girls Club also is like an amazing program that fosters a lot of young girls' voices and social justice issues that they care about, but also like a, providing them with like so many amazing opportunities and resources as well. Starting with Sandra, what uh, about the Know Your Rights camp meant the most to you? What are, what are some of the main things you learned? They're my family. Like, I've never had a family where I felt like I belong more than this one. Energy, energy. Like, they just, everybody in the Know Your Rights camp just exudes love that's so genuine that it just vibrates. And I feel like being in that space is, like, amazing. I remember one of the earliest camps that I went to in New Orleans, I was just so excited to be there that I was like nervous. I'm like, what role will I play here? Like all these amazing people that I know of who are just killing it. What can I possibly do to make a difference or add to this team? And it was that day, that camp in New Orleans, where I really learned how to be intentional with the words that I choose and how um, my ability to be such a, I talk a lot, <laughs> but my ability to talk being used as a way to connect. I no longer felt like I was just an annoying person who talked a lot, but like someone who is instrumental in building and sustaining connections. And it was very important to have that connection with the kids who attended. And they were super excited throughout the day just because me, along with some other youth ambassadors, were able to keep that energy. So, yeah, the family and also just knowing that everybody plays a role, just having that. It makes you feel great about yourself, knowing that you have a place in this family and we're all doing something together for the greater good. I said, too, why do you want to be a part of this? Why do you want to be a mentor? Yeah, to piggyback on what, like, Chandra said, like, the importance of, like, family, but also everyone who attends the camp has a value in community and, like, your voice is being heard and they make sure, like, your voice is being heard. Like, I remember even in Miami, like, how Colin, he came, he sat next to all the youth ambassadors. He was asking us, what do we think about the camp? What do we want to see in the camp? And the fact that our opinion is, like, so valued and, like... They're also like one of our biggest support systems. They're always rooting for us. They always want the best for us. So it's the fact of just having people 
who cares so much about you being able to like also join and like also this like bigger mission of also continuing to help like other people as well. Sticking with you, Chandra, I wanted to ask you, one of the 10 points of the Know Your Rights camp is you have the right to be loved. Can you elaborate on why it is important to have this as a pillar of the program? I think the one thing that society doesn't teach is self-love. We often see sexual relations propagated way too much. <laughs> Romantic relations are just love, are pillars of um, American culture and music and books. But self-love is really something that you don't see often. It's not something that's taught the way that we learn to love our family, the way we learn to love. And I feel like the Know Your Rights Camp teaches you to love yourself. I feel like all of the other points all come back to the love that you have for yourself. When you exist in a community that teaches you or shows you time and time again how little you mean to them in society, it's just nice to be in a place where every single thing and every single resource being pulled that day is for you out of genuine love and care. I feel like that space is filled with love. So it had to be a point. But I think it's important for Black people to love themselves. It's important for us to know our worth. Well, both of you ladies, thank you very much. Congratulations on your success and your future success. And kudos to what you guys have done with the Know Your Rights program. That's all we have time for today on Beyond 28. I want to thank our guests, Alicia Garza, Eric Reed, Patricia Robinson, Agiato Diallo, and Shonda Raj. If you like what you heard and haven't already done so, please go to the Beyond 28 page and Apple Podcasts and give us five stars. It makes a huge difference. Stay tuned next month as Beyond 28 looks at the Black community, its family. I'm your host, Mark J. Spears from ESPN's The Undefeated. Thanks for listening. Hey, how'd it do, y'all? I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and Western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.